Number 4 Ephesians, 3rd quarter, 2023 John Pauline Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We're starting Lesson 4, How God Rescues Us in the Quarter on Ephesians. Dr. John Pauline is our moderator, and our opening prayer will be by Obi. Our Father, we come to you today, and we ask for your blessing on Dr. Pauline. He's going to have a busy weekend. We pray that you will be with him. But especially today, as we study Ephesians, we pray that you will bless each of the class members, and may our minds be clear that we will understand and gain a blessing from the study today. We thank you, Lord, for this class. Thank you, Lord, for another Sabbath, and we thank you for giving us a day that's set apart to worship you. These things I pray in your name. Amen. Amen. We are studying the fourth in a series of 13 lessons on the book of Ephesians. And in this lesson today, we are moving from chapter one into chapter two. And I invite you to look at your handout and go to number one in the handout, which kind of summarizes a bit of what lesson four is all about. In Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, Paul gives us an up-close and personal view of the grandest, most sweeping rescue mission of all time. But we humans are not just spectators of someone else's rescue. As we so often are on news broadcasts, we are witnesses of our own rescue from sin and its consequences. The lesson a pamphlet itself does that off of a story, and it's a story of a small child who fell into a well, an abandoned well, and was down there, and apparently it was just narrow enough or whatever, they could not find any way to rescue. You know, the child wouldn't know to get in a chair or to grab onto a rope, so they need to get somebody down there to rescue the child, and the whole world was watching on television with bated breath, and I think it was about 36 hours when the child was finally rescued, and not a whole lot worse for the wear, apparently. So that was a remarkable story. But we're fascinated by rescue missions. And the lesson points out that in this case, we are witnesses of our own rescue and also part of the rescue mission. So using that as an analogy, in a rescue mission, there are rescuers and there are observers. And in the case of the plan of salvation, we are both observers of our own rescue and involved in the rescue of others. So I thought that was a fascinating kind of analogy. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, and this is number 2 in your handout, and we'll look at the first 10 verses of chapter 2, which is the topic of our lesson. The question to consider is, how would you summarize the message of this passage? If you could put it into one short sentence, what is Paul trying to say in these 10 verses? You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath, like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that anyone may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. All right. So if you were to summarize that in a sentence, what would that sentence be? How would you summarize what Paul is trying to say in this particular passage. All right, Lou? I just think that's the gospel right there. It just tells us the whole story of salvation. Okay. And what is that story? That Jesus came to redeem us from our fallen nature, that uh, we were helpless, like the story you talked about, the little baby girl. We are helpless apart from him. I just love the picture I have in my mind that God 
the Holy Spirit and Jesus had a conference and they knew they needed to do something to redeem the sinners. And so Jesus volunteered and they all supported and he came down to redeem us and to show us who God is. Thank you for that reflection on the passage. Michael. One sentence, we are saved by the grace of God. Not anything that we do. Grace of God is God's love for us, in spite of ourselves. All right. Thank you. That's a, that's a good summary. Livius. Uh, in one sentence, we were members of a family that was doomed to destruction, and now we can be members of a new family. There's this idea that we were sons of disobedience, but now we're recreated in Christ Jesus. Like we can become members of a different order if you will. Yeah, this is excellent. I think these summaries have been helpful. It appears like there's three stages in this text. It's the former condition, and then the rescue, you know, what happened in Christ. And then it's God's continued working in the lives of the Ephesians after that. So you have three stages, but I would suggest there's actually four. And what would that fourth stage be? And that should be an easy answer for this group. What stage is in this text? But when we're thinking of ourselves, we just think of what we were, what happened, and where we are now. But what's the fourth stage? And if you remember Ephesians 1, that would be very strongly emphasized there as well. Henry. Will that be verse 7 on chapter 2? That in order to show to his abundant riches of grace that has been given for us, that he was attempting also not only to rescue us, but also to show, to display to the onlooking universe that he was exactly the person that he has always been. Henry, I like that very much. In fact, now I'm convinced it's five stages. Yes, you pointed out very much what's in the text. So, And in Ephesians, Paul has this cosmic view all the way through. So we must never forget that. And Henry just reminded us of how deeply that pervades everything, not just the present, but also the past and the future. So the present of the Ephesians is, in a sense, a training ground for the future that Henry has pointed out, Paul has in mind for them. Still looking for that fifth <laughs> stage right now. And that would be the stage before. Verses five and six, there's a foundation for the great change that comes as a foundation for the rescue. And that is the great love of God, God's richness and mercy, and God's grace. So stage zero, if you will, is God's mercy, love, and grace. Stage one is the condition the Ephesians were in before they got connected with that. Stage two is how what God did in Christ changed things for them. Stage three is what they are becoming in Christ. And stage four, shall we say, would be what God will do with these Ephesians in eternity. And that becomes a major theme of chapter three, as we will see. But we've used the word here a couple of times. Maybe we should reflect on it just a bit. What is grace? Paul uses it a lot in his letters, and he uses it a lot in Ephesians. How would you define grace? Sometimes the most important words in the Christian vocabulary are words we use freely, but don't really know what they mean. So what is grace, actually? All right, Nancy? I see grace as God's wonderful graciousness. Okay, grace means being gracious, but that is still defining it by itself. Michael, what about you? It's the expression of God's love for us, which is everlasting. Okay. He never gives up on anybody. Uh -huh. People reject him, but that doesn't change the fact that God still loves them. Yeah. And by the way, Nancy, I wasn't meaning that as a put down or anything. The hardest thing on earth to do if you're writing a dictionary is to define a word without using that word in the definition. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a very, very difficult thing to do. And I think we probably know better what gracious means, okay, than grace. And so that actually, I think, was helpful. But trying to define it without using itself, that would be the gold standard if we can make it. Lou, what do you think? Well, I kind of heard an example a long time ago. is God doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Okay. Nice and practical, simple. Bob? 
in working in law, I know Michael has worked on these too. There is a concept of waiver. And like if there was a penalty or a huge debt or something and somebody issues a settlement or a waiver, getting rid of that obligation, in my mind, there is that because it's a complete sweep of everything that's gone before that's wrong. But it's done in love where sometimes in law, a lot of times in law, things aren't done out of love. They're done out of transactional. But it does seem to me that it's there's this term, I know somewhere in the Bible, where if the sins are a scarlet, they're wiped out. And that seems to me like an expression of cleaning everything out that was before that was negative. All right. Larry? Would it be God's willingness to show unconditional, non-changing love that began before he created us? Yeah, I think that the the idea of lack of conditions, I think, is pretty helpful here. But it began before any events occurred. So it's a condition that existed before we existed. Uh Uh-huh. I think that is helpful to realize if it goes that far back, then we can't earn it. But I think at the core of grace is the idea that it's not conditional. It's something that is not based on a prior earning of it in some way. Libius? I think grace is activated when there is a situation that has gone awry in a negative direction, and it's completely from the other party. Like, let's say I went down the wrong path, right? And someone is trying to get me on the right path. Grace is activated by a party outside myself, uh, someone outside, and it's 100% towards me trying to get me on the right path. And it encompasses a bunch of characteristics, patience, kindness, willing to work with me to help me to understand my situation. And it's all desiring my good. All right. Robert Wegman. Grace is that marriage in favor. That's Ellen White's definition. And I would say I haven't come up with a better one. Yeah. That God has favor toward you that is not based on any merit on your part, any earning of it. Sean. An attitude of positive, active kindness. I say that based on looking at the interlinear of verse seven, where it indicates riches of the grace of him in kindness toward us. Mm -hmm. I love it being observant to the text. And sometimes a word can mean different things in different contexts. But I think we have surrounded grace with a number of ways of expressing it that are helpful to us. Not going to make it any easier on you, though, because in opening this chapter, Paul says, you were dead in transgressions and sins. And let me first go to the you. Paul says, you were dead. Who's he talking to here? And so we don't spend a lot of time discussing it. I think let me just simply note that scholars are pretty united in the idea that when Paul says you, in contrast with we, the we refers to Jews, the you refers to Gentiles. So Paul here is not just addressing the Ephesian audience in general. Paul is addressing Gentiles in particular who were not Jewish before they came to the gospel. So Galatians, I think you find this a lot too, the we and the you. When Paul is deliberately addressing Gentiles, he goes to the second person. When he's addressing Jews, he says, we are those. Okay, so you, Gentiles, were dead in transgressions and sins. And the question is, what does this metaphor mean? What does it mean to be not dead literally, but dead figuratively? What does that mean? You don't have to answer that, Larry. If you had a comment on the previous discussion, you're welcome. Since words have meaning, and depending on the culture you grow up in, the same word can have multiple meanings. Can we simplify the concept of grace by equating it to character? That becomes another word you have to define, but many of the descriptions we've used could lead off into other things. And so I'm just trying to look for something that is very simple that can be equated to a constant item around the universe. 
Yeah, uh, we'd have to think about that a little bit. But you can show grace without having a gracious character. You can simply say, I'm just not going to operate on the basis of what this person earned. I'm just going to do this. So there might be a bit of a distinction there, but that's worth thinking about. Thank you, Larry. Henry? In response to your question, without being dead because he's talking to them, what does that mean? I will say that probably is an allusion to the Bible that they had in their time, the Old Testament, when God told Adam and Eve, the day that you will eat, you will surely die. So he's basically making reference to the ultimate condition of human beings after sin. And also calls my attention what I have never seen that you mentioned just a little bit ago, a bit reading this over and over, and never ever saw it, that he's talking to when you were dead, talking to somebody else. But in verse 5, he is also now considering himself, and now he says, we were dead. So it's not only them, it's also us that Paul is making reference there. So it's not a condition of only the Gentiles, it's also a condition of us addressing one population first and then making reference. But it's not only you, actually, it was all of us. Oh, that is so good, Henry. I don't think I'd really spotted that, the connection between verse 1 and verse 5. So thanks for pointing that out to, to all of us. So this, whatever this means, being dead and trespassing, since it's not only Gentiles who are, but he's informing them. We know, but now you know what condition you were in. All right, Sean. Yes, uh, thank you very much, Henry, because I was looking at the text quite closely, verses 1 through 5, and I noticed Paul's use of the word you a couple of times, and then one, two, three, four, at least in this English translation of the interlinear, four places where he uses we, and then one place where he uses our, and then one place where he uses us, all in verses one through five. So I very much appreciate the inclusivity of Paul here in his willingness to be very straightforward and point out the deadness of the Gentile, but as he works down through verse five, the aliveness of all of us who would choose Christ as Savior. So I, I think the contrast between dead and alive is much more internal. Obviously, these people are living, these people are alive, but somehow he's describing them as dead. So this is internal a mental deadness, an emotional deadness, which as he describes here and in other places very keenly leads to all kinds of corrupt activities. But the aliveness in Christ, in quote unquote Christ, produces other interests, other thinking, other ways of choosing something in a lifestyle that's much more healthy. So this aliveness, I think, reflects how humans, whether Gentile or Jew, become much more interested in that which Christ himself demonstrated while I was on earth, a life of health, a life of seeking purity, seeking kindness, and the gifts of the Spirit that Paul outlines in other places. So, so one definition of spiritually dead that has already been offered is the idea that it is heading toward death. In other words, doomed. You know, person who's spiritually dead is someone who's going to be physically dead here soon and eternally physically dead if they're not careful. You know, second death types. So that's one possibility. Is there a psychological thing going on here? Is there a definable deadness that Paul may have in mind? Livius. I found it interesting that you mentioned that the you is related to the Gentiles and the we is the Jews. And as Henry mentioned and others have mentioned, there's this progression from you to we to us. And the you is related to someone. There is the following the prince of the air, right? And there's this contrast between the prince of the power of the air that they're following, that they're dead in their trespasses, and the prince that Paul is following. Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of Life, you know, who's gracious. And so it's almost like the you, like they've come over to the other side. Like the Jews have Jesus who brings life and they're still stuck in the Prince and the power of the air. So there's this transition. I see a flow of progression from you to who are following the Prince and the power of the air to us who know Jesus who is the life giver. And if you come over, he will raise us all up 
That's helpful. And, and I really love reading deeply and carefully in the text. It does appear that the we in Ephesians 2 can also mean both together. And I don't doubt that Paul uses it that way in many places. So that's a good observation to make. But where you have you and we sort of going back and forth, that's usually Jew and Gentile that's in mind. But Ephesians 2 seems to use it a third way. Good observation. Michael? Do we know the size of the audience to whom Paul was writing? Emphasis at that time was primarily a polytheistic society. And so how many people were included in this in his notion of the we and the us? That's an excellent question. Uh, the typical church in those days would be 20 to 50 people, and that's a house church. But we know already in Thessalonica, six months after Paul visited there the first time, there were several congregations to the churches in Thessalonica. So the Ephesus probably was in the 100 to 200,000 range of population. So it was one of the major cities of the whole empire. Laodicea later on reached as much as 300,000, but that was probably a hundred years or so after Revelation that it reached its maximum. So Ephesus was sort of, you know, the big dog in Asia Minor, at least. And it's presumed that Paul's ministry would have reached in the hundreds, at least, scattered in a number of house churches. Larry? Is there a possibility in what Paul's trying to say here with the contrasting death and life? Life is something that, while this side of eternity, is something that needs to be renewed on a moment-by-moment basis. That if you aren't renewing life, therefore, by definition, you are dead. And which then has its own outworking. Is he trying to say something in that? Because he does write a lot about this kind of a thing in his letters in total. So I'm wondering if that's one of the things he's trying to say here. I think one way one could define spiritually dead is the idea that you're alive, but life is not worth living. You know, it's sort of a pre-suicidal state. It's the recognition that life is not worth living. You're separated from God, who's the source of life. I think somewhere in there is the psychological component of spiritually dead. And Jesus uses this in places as well. Livius? I just wanted to add an observation in verse 6, where it says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The ultimate result is that it points us to Revelation 3.21, where it says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So there's an ultimate glorification here from this process. Yeah, I love that connection with Revelation 3.21. The one difference is in Revelation 3, it's future tense. In Ephesians 2, it's present tense. Or in this case, I think even past tense. He has raised us up. It's something that's already occurred. So Paul, you have this idea in the Jewish mind, you had the present age and the age to come. So the present age is evil. The present age is depressing. The present age leads us to death. The present age, God is not honored in this world. God's kingdom is future. Yet, And then the future age is when everything good happens. So that's the Jewish concept. For Paul, that should have happened when Messiah died. In the Pharisaical concept, Messiah would come, would die. The old age would be gone. It would just disintegrate. And then God would create a totally new world and a new kingdom and a new reality. That was the Jewish concept, now and then. But the New Testament concept, very strong in Paul, is now and not yet that we have, in reality, many things now that were promised to be part of the age to come. So when Paul realized that Jesus was the Messiah and the world hadn't ended, his whole view of the future had to shift. And the idea that instead of moving from the old age to the new, that the new age has somehow infiltrated back into the old age, that we're now living the new age and the old at the same time. And this explains the tremendous conflict that people often have internally, even after conversion. There's a lot of internal conflict, frustration, that things don't go as much as we would like. And that's because we've tasted the new age, but the old age is still dragging us down. 
And that inner conflict is something that appears multiple times in Paul. Notice in verse 2 of Ephesians 2 that he says, You used to live in this dead and transgression and sins condition. You used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work and those who are disobedient. Remember, we talked at an earlier time here in Ephesians about the air being the place where they thought the demons were, not underground. I think today we tend to think of it as kind of underground. But then they thought the demons were up in the air, in the atmosphere. And so when Jesus is seated on the throne, they are now under his feet. They're under his control. And that was changing the dynamic that you see here in verse 2. So Paul is saying that there were two external threats in this life. Those external threats were the culture, as I say here, the ways of this world. All right, that's the culture in which we live. So one threat to Christian walk with God is the culture in which you live. The culture is constantly either neutral or resisting the direction that God would take us. The gospel is very countercultural. You live by dying. You earn by not working, etc. In so many ways, the gospel's countercultural. And so the culture is constantly dragging us down. And then on top of that is the demonic, the demonic element, the prince of this world. So you see, in Ephesians, the cosmic conflict is never at a distance. And this is one of the clearest texts that tells us that everything we experience, every thought, every action, every intention, everything that's done to you, all of that is part of this much bigger battle. And God is at work in our lives, but Satan is also seeking to work in our lives. And we feel the conflict between the two eras, the two ways of thinking. So what we learn about the cosmic conflict here in Ephesians is that our daily lives are very much part of that larger battle. The cosmic conflict teaching may seem distant at first hearing, but it's actually extremely practical, helping us to understand what we're going through day by day. When we seek to follow God, we seek to be all that we can be. And yet we're, even as Christians, frustrated at the times we fail, at the times that things don't go the way we had hoped. Sean? I find it simply fascinating these points that you are amplifying for us here, that Paul increasingly became aware of this ongoing conflict and in his ministry to all people, Jews, Gentiles, Jews who were becoming Christians, Gentiles who were becoming Christian, he made it both easy and difficult for them to understand the issues at stake. And this passage seems to highlight that for me as he reminds his audience, those who were believing that evil was upstairs in the air, that the prince of darkness existed in the realm in the air, he was reminding those people that, yes, that is a concept that might help you, but here's the reality. You are dead in trespasses and sins. You actually, on a daily basis, are committing evil. So what you might imagine is up in the air It's actually working out in your living and in your choices. So he's making it easy for them by attracting them, speaking their language, but he's also making it quite difficult for them to hear his diagnosis. As he says, you are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So there's real disobedience going on here, folks. This isn't just evil happening outside of yourself. It's evil happening in you. I find that simply fascinating. He's an incredible teacher. (laughs) Well, the gospel is simple, and it's also complicated. And Paul brings that out as well as anyone. Let me just nuance what you said just a little bit, because Paul does very much say that this is all past tense. He says, when you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you used to live, following the ways of the world, the ruler, the kingdom of the air, the spirit, who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All right. So Paul is not saying that Christians are under the control of Satan. Okay. But that is a condition that we could go back into. We could fall back into very easily. And so he reminds them over and over again, you were like this. Okay. That's what you were. 
because if we don't remember it's what we were, it didn't become what we are so easily. But Paul is encouraging them to say, no, you left that behind. And while Satan is out there, he can no longer dominate you. While the ways of the world are out there, they cannot dominate you either, but they can. They cannot dominate you, but they can get under your skin, so to speak, and create challenges. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time. Now, notice the difference, all right? (laughs) Paul doesn't say that the Jews were under Satan's control at any point, all right? So he's drawing a bit of a distinction here. The culture of the world, Jews kind of ignore that. Okay, they've got their own culture, and it's very deeply ingrained, and it works well. So the, the, the Jews are not so subject to the culture, the external threats, not so subject to Satan. But all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. All right, there is an internal threat that we all share, and that internal threat is the passions, the desires of body and mind, the bent toward rebellion. We may be bent, but we're not dominated by these desires. But they are there, and they are real. There's a big debate among scholars, gender scholars in New Testament, as to whether Paul has anything to say about LGBT orientation. And on the one side, and this is among Adventist scholars, okay, And I won't name names this morning because I respect them both and find value in what they both say. But on the one hand, there's a statement, Paul knows nothing about homosexual orientation, same-sex orientation. Paul knows nothing about that. Okay, he's not addressing that at all. He may be addressing behavior, but he's not addressing the condition that many people find themselves in. So that's one way to look at it. Paul's not addressing it. The Bible doesn't address it. So we should not be harsh, perhaps, if somebody is oriented in a certain way, just as many of us are oriented toward opposite sex attraction. Some are oriented differently, and the orientation is not the problem. Another perspective is the idea that Paul has a lot to say about orientation, that we are all oriented to sin. And, and, and the beauty of that, even the horror of it, of course, is that we are all bent. We're all distorted. And even those who've received Christ, there's still that battle within. But the beauty of it means that if we're all distorted, then there's no reason for one to look down on another that the orientation to sin is a common problem that we all face. So whatever we have to say to people with a different orientation should be said from the perspective of a common brokenness. We're all broken. We're all falling short of the glory of God. And that's a reality. And so Paul, when he addresses these kinds of issues, wants to be very clear. You must address these things from a perspective of a common fallenness. And so when the Adventist church addresses these things, it spends as much time on how you treat people as on identifying what may be problems in a particular orientation, etc. So it's important to keep in mind, I think Christians tend to gravitate with what's wrong with these people. And the only proper question is what's wrong with us. If we are to the degree that we have gained the victory over things, and victory is a real solid thing, to the degree that we have obtained a victory over some of these things to that degree that's a wonderful thing but our condition is still there our orientation is still there i have a good friend i'll be sharing a room with him in a couple weeks at a scholarly conference but he taught me a lot about paul and he emphasizes this very very strongly this concept of the desires is deeply significant psychologically emotionally etc. And as part of where we all live and wrestle with the challenges of this life. Michael? Yeah, it's easy to insulate ourselves and condemn others until we're faced with it in our lives. I remember when my then, I think he was 24-year-old son, told me he was homosexual. And then what was my reaction to that? And Fortunately, I told him uh, it was kind of a shock. But on the other hand, I said, you're my son. I love you dearly. And so your orientation, sexual orientation, doesn't concern me. 
And I've seen other people deal with similar things. You give birth to a child and at age nine or 10, you've got a lot of behavioral problems. You find out the child's autistic or you have a child that's born with Down syndrome. God said to love everyone. It doesn't say shutter these people away. And it's on the day-to-day problems and difficulties of life that we have to deal with these things and not ignore them. That's the other thing is to pretend that these things don't really affect us, don't happen to us, because they do happen. Thank you, Michael. I don't want to get distracted on this particular issue. I used it only as an illustration of how Paul's language here is so deep and impactful in in so many areas to understand. But again, the balance between, on the one hand, caring about God's reputation, caring about the behavior of people in the church, all that is important stuff. But there are things going on that are not the core of how should we put it, right and wrong or something like that, how a person was born, how a person was trained, that in itself is not something they necessarily chose. And that should not be a basis for making deep distinctions among us. But at the same time, having a gracious compassion of God who loves all people with all backgrounds and all orientations. I mean, after all, if he loves me, who is as deeply oriented to sin as anybody else, then how could I ever look down on somebody else? In the next part of this chapter, Paul gets into that very much in a practical sense of relationships. So Paul talks about these desires, and he doesn't say kill the desires. He doesn't say you can kill that orientation, but he does say you can control it. And that's the difference. God has given us in Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, the ability to control things, control behaviors. We may not be able to kill it in orientation to alcohol. We may not be able to kill an orientation to sin, but we can control. And that is what Paul is urging the people to do, control these things. Larry. This whole idea is kind of interesting because the title of the lesson is, How Does God Save Us? We're talking about a lot of outward behavior issues. And over my life, I've worked on outward behavior issues, which are somewhat easier to control. What I have a hard time working on and getting a mastery with God's help is the internal brain issues of how my thinking has to get reoriented. And maybe someday I'll have a dull moment and I will write down the thousands of things where my life has changed. All of while I was holding church offices and doing things and for all intents and purposes, a good tithe-paying Seventh-day Adventist. But deep down inside, now as I look back, it was like, well, that was then, this is now, and there's been a progress. And I think that's what Paul is trying to suggest is this life versus death progress. And as probably anybody over 45 and definitely anybody over 55 understands, those become not just daily. They are like an ongoing issue that you have to deal with. We get caught up on the things that I can see and all I can see of you is your outward behavior. I have no idea what goes on in your struggles and the things you are being confronted with. So when I pick on your outward behavior, it is demoralizing to you on the things that you are struggling with. And that is where Paul is suggesting, I think, in other places that when you, as a mature Christian, do something that harms someone else, that is a hugely detrimental thing in this discussion we're having I think is appropriate because we're going to talk of these things get developed over the next two lessons that we're going to talk about today. A psychologist once said to me, we let the gospel go as deep as our sin. We don't always let it go as deep as our pain. That beyond the level of the behavior, there are also deeper struggles. And Paul, I think, is speaking powerfully to some of the issues that underlie there. Just a couple quick comments about the text. Paul talks about children of wrath, and you're probably wondering what that's all about. Well, the wrath term for Paul is usually future. He's talking about the second coming. He's talking about the fate of the wicked, that the wrath of God ultimately lets the wicked go, that the wrath of God is God 
respecting the choice of the wicked to non-existence rather than continuing in engagement with God. So children of wrath means people doomed. You know, the future is doomed, just to clear that up. And then notice in verse 4, he says, but because of his great love for us, God, all right? That's a big but, but God. He's clearly contrasting it in the Greek language. He's saying, okay, thus, thus, and thus, verses 1 to 3, but going to change direction totally. And that change of direction comes from God. But God, who is great in love, rich in mercy, full of grace. God, he says here, makes all the difference. So it's God's love, which we've defined in the past as other-centeredness. It's God's mercy, which means he doesn't enforce consequences for what we have done, but instead treats us as if we hadn't sinned. Grace without a cause, no cause in us for God to treat us the way he does. This concept of you were dead and now he has made you alive, that's a metaphor, of course. We weren't literally dead. But the life that was not worth living is now worth living. That's the move there. There's another way, another metaphor to describe this in the New Testament, and one that Graham Maxwell loved the most, I think. And that is the metaphor of you are sick. Sin is a sickness. Sin is an illness. When you're teaching medical students, I think you gravitate toward <laughs> metaphors like that. But seeing the, the pre-Christian condition as an illness, and then the gospel is the process of healing from illness to health, from sickness to well-being, is another metaphor for this move from the before and the after of Christian life. So we have Clara here. I see us as born in a terminal sick condition. And if left alone, we're going to die. Adam, we inherited it from him. And that Christ has made it possible for us to take on his life, which is not terminal. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's a good summary. Terry, would you read verses four to six and refresh our minds on those? But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All right, that's not difficult to understand. What Paul is doing, he's got three compound words here. In the Greek, the first one is actually a triple compound. The other two are two are double compounds. But he says, he made us alive in Christ. He raised us up with him. He seated us with him in heavenly places. All right. And this is past tense. So whatever he's talking about here is not something now taking place in the lives of the Ephesians. It's something that already happened. We know that God raised up Christ. He made him alive. Okay. That was the resurrection. Raised him to heaven. That was his ascension. Seated him in heavenly places. That was his enthronement in heaven. So we have events in Christ's life, his resurrection, his ascension, his seating on the throne. But Paul is doing something startling here. He is taking the conversion experience and saying that you were raised, you were made alive, you were raised up, you were seated with him. And by the way, in the Oriental world, thrones were often not armchairs, they were couches. If you go to Istanbul and see the Sultan's throne in the museum there, it's a couch. And seated at the right hand is, makes sense in that context. You are joining in the honor, etc., that is associated uh, with the person on that throne. But what do you think Paul is getting at with this analogy? I mean, it's simple. We know exactly what he's saying, but what on earth does he mean when he includes us in the resurrection, ascension, and enthronement of Jesus? What is he doing? What's he trying to get across to these Ephesians? I know these are tough questions. I've been asking myself all week, but he's clearly doing something. What would you suggest that he's trying to get across to them? Sean? There's something about 
this event in verse five that has always sparkled my investigation and my curiosity. And the word that in various translations that has sparked that curiosity is the word quickened, where it says, we were dead through our trespasses and made us alive is typically the way it's translated in English. But there are some translations that use the word he quickened us together with Christ. And then this process that we're all wondering about seating us in heavenly places with him. I have attempted to understand this as a means by which my mind is no longer earthbound. I have been seated in a sanctuary setting where I am surrounded by the influences of God, the character, the person of God, and all that is good, right, just, holy, along with all the list of the spiritual gifts, quickened from the earthbound mind to this place of being seated. My mind and my emotion are seated in that same context with Christ. I really like that, Sean. I think that nails a big piece of this. We weren't literally dead. Paul isn't saying that about the Ephesians. You're not dead physically, but in your minds you were. And he's saying, instead of being in a dead condition, mentally and emotionally, you are to see yourself sitting on the throne of the universe. And from there, the demons can't hurt you. The culture can't hurt you. Even those desires can't drag you down anymore. Are we sitting in heavenly places? Literally, no. But it's a mindset. And the degree to which we can set our minds in heavenly places, to that degree, it can more and more impact our own self-understanding and our own ability to wrestle with the deeper issues of this life. And every time you feel like you're being dragged down, somebody says something, whatever, you're seated on the right hand of God. If you're seated at the right hand of God, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. We invest way too much time worrying about what other people think. But if you're seated at the right hand of God, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. And I think that's the mindset, Sean. I love that. It's the mindset that transforms the way we relate to everything that we experience in this life. Okay, Henry? I wonder if the other purpose of that statement is to demonstrate that there is absolutely nothing on our side, nothing that we can do or improve to get that position of being in heaven. That this was an unilateral decision from God. Make everything ready for anybody. Like Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you. It's not, I'm asking you permission. It's not if you are good enough. It's not if you understand what I'm doing. This is exactly what it's my intention because you are my creatures. So in my mind, you are resurrected. In my mind, you have taken to heaven. In my mind, you are seated next to me. And I did not ask you permission because I do this out of love and grace for you. Amen. Thank you. Michael. In verse 10, it says that we are created to do good works by the love of Jesus Christ. And so I think that message, at least to me, that I should lead a decent life, to be kind to other people, to be helpful when I can. And the most difficult place to practice Christianity is right here in my own home with my own immediate family. Because I see those, I see my wife every single day. And so it's significant that I have to practice these principles every day. And then also with people with whom I come in contact. I have found that if I try to do that and strive to do that, that it improves not my physical outlook of life, but improves my spiritual being. I feel much better about myself when I do that. That is so good, Michael. I've often thought that the real test of Christian life is how we behave at home, not how we behave in front of strangers. If you're a preacher, maybe even adoring audiences. It's easy to behave in certain ways in that context. But when life gets rough, when you're under pressure, how do you behave then? That's the real test of Christian faith. 
And I don't mean that to be discouraging to anybody who's failed in that regard, but simply it's a measuring stick. And Paul says, what you're doing, do it more and more. A Christian life is more and more. It's getting being better the next day than you were today. And we can all, I think, do that. Libius. I totally see the cosmic conflict here in this passage, and it's just fascinating how it comes out. There's this idea, starting from verse 1 to verse 10, of a process that we have to walk. Verse 2 starts off, we are walking, following the course of this world in which we once walked. And verse 10 ends with that we should walk in them. What should we walk in? And the great love with which he loved us, that's Jesus. That's Christ. The grace that you have been saved, Christ is the grace. He is the gift. Jesus is the gift. So there's this contrast of in verse 10. Verse 10 is just so pregnant with meaning, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there's this idea that we've been walking, we've been walking in a dead direction, and now we should walk in a living direction, in a direction that leads to life. And there's this contrast of who are we walking towards? I just love this passage. Mm. And it's getting better as we look at it, isn't yes. it? Liz. I wanted to follow up on Livius's comment. I love verse 10 too. And I think that when it says we are his workmanship, it means we are his works of art. We are Mona Lisa's on his wall. We are that Chihuly glass sculpture that he has given all of heaven to be his chosen bride and made us so special. And I just think that if we see ourselves as a work of art, it makes me at least personally want to do the things that God has said will make me happy. We want to bring honor to his character. So I think it is, you talked about a mindset. I think being a work of art is a mindset. We need that mindset, and then we will be his people. Yeah, excellent thought. It made me think that the artwork is sitting there, and the two-year-old grandchild comes by and pokes a hole in it. The great artist incorporates the hole into the painting until it's even more beautiful than it was before. It suddenly becomes a whole new theme. So it's an analogy, but it's a lovely one. And thanks for bringing it up. Let me get to my favorite part of this passage, because I see the clock moving on. And this has been a wonderful discussion. But the lesson does bring out another text that sort of lies to the side. And that's 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. And I'm just going to read it here. I was going to have us discuss this for a while. But I think we've exhausted the theme already. He says, God has not given us a spirit of fear. What are you afraid of? You're afraid of what other people think? Afraid of what the neighbors are doing? Afraid of where the church is heading? Afraid of where the country is heading? God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I love that sound mind. Healthy thinking. God has not given us a spirit of fear. He's given us a spirit of healthy thinking. And we can embrace that when our thinking is in the toilet, when our thinking is in the wrong direction. We can embrace healthy thinking, a sound mind. And I thought that was worth bringing in, even though we don't have time to discuss those terms more deeply. My favorite part of this lesson related to verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. All right. And this is coming back to what Henry pointed out earlier. Although even though I noticed verse seven, I didn't really think of that as another stage. So that was extremely helpful to point out. And here Paul is saying that the stakes are not just the battle right now. The stakes are that God has a plan for us. That's all of us, not just the Jews. <laughs> God has a plan for all of us in eternity to show his grace to us in coming ages in Christ Jesus. The lesson author puts it this way. He's an academic president of a university. He says, we never graduate from grace, that in eternity, we will still be the objects of God's grace. 
And that somehow, it says, in the coming ages, he will show, he will demonstrate his character in how he treats us in Christ Jesus. That extends the plan of salvation into the infinite future. Surprising text. Apparently, the stability of the universe depends on this, the way that God will treat us in eternity. Humanity is being singled out in eternity. By the way, Jesus will be human too. So humanity is incorporated into the Godhead in a way that no other creature is. It's part of God's plan. It's part of the stability of the universe. God's generosity, that's kind of a word for grace, God's generosity to the greatest of rebels becomes an ageless and cosmic exhibit of his grace. And whenever there's trouble in the universe in future times, God will simply point to the way he's continuing to treat the rebels to demonstrate that any doubts about his character are way off bounds. The Tsar of Ages, pages 19 and 20, by coming to dwell with us, Jesus was to reveal God both to men and to angels. So Jesus coming to this earth was not just for us. He was the word of God, God's thought made audible. In his prayer for his disciples, he says, I have declared unto them thy name, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, that the love wherewith you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Ellen White continues, but not alone for his earth-born children was this revelation given. Our little world is the lesson book of the universe. God's wonderful purpose of grace, the mystery of redeeming love, is the theme into which angels desire to look. And it will be their study throughout the endless ages. Both the redeemed and the unfallen beings will find in the cross of Christ their science and their song. It will be seen that the glory shining in the face of Jesus is the glory of self-sacrificing love. It's almost as if she was reading Ephesians 2 when she wrote that. God has this enormous plan and fallen, redeemed human beings are at the center of that plan. Terry, would you read Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 5 to 9? Because it speaks to the very same thing that Ephesians 2, 7 does. Now God did not subject the coming world about which we are speaking to angels. But someone has testified somewhere. What are human beings that you are mindful of them or mortals that you care for them? You have made them for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned them with glory and honor, subjecting all things under their feet. Now in subjecting all things to them, God left nothing outside their control. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to them, but we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Thank you. So here we see God has not subjected the future universe to angels, it says here. But instead, it was his plan to place human beings in charge. In fact, I would argue that this lesson refers back to the beginning, that when God created the world, it was with the intent of embedding in it creatures more like God than anyone else in the universe. Nowhere is it said of the angels that they are made in God's image. Nowhere is it say that angels can procreate the power of creation that human beings received. God desired to create a race of creatures that was more like him than any other that God had made. Got a little detour on the way because of sin. But this original project was so significant to God that he has done all that he has done to redeem the human race so that in the end of all things, it is human beings who will be sitting on the throne, human beings who will be involved assisting God in the rule of the universe. And all that is part of his plan to keep the universe safe for eternity. Safe for eternity means free without sin. It's freedom that allowed for the possibility of sin. God would like a universe that's no less free, but is safeguarded. What do we have on our computers? Well, these are virus scans or something like that. Is there a term for that? Anyway, 
God would like to use the human race as sort of a virus scan in the future to keep the universe safe yet free. God could keep the universe safe without freedom, but safe and free, that's going to be a miracle. And God seeks to involve us in that miracle. And for that, we can look forward in our darkest moments from day to day, from week to week. Remember, you were born to the throne. You were born to make a difference. And it's not going to stop now or tomorrow, but it's for eternity. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for the book of Ephesians. We thank you for a lesson author who has so carefully drawn out many details of this study. We're thankful for the discussion today in which so many have added so richly to our understanding of these things. So, Lord, we give honor and glory to you for all of that and invite your continued presence in this project for Jesus' sake. Amen.